2 Timothy, where Paul writes to young Timothy, and he says, all scripture is God-breathed. That's why I say the Bible says, you know, that contrary thinking to what God's word has to say is a deception, you know? Uh, And so all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so uh, when I talk about a biblical worldview, I'm really talking about uh, the view of the world that the Bible presents to us, right? From Abraham all the way on down to today, or better yet, from uh, Genesis chapter 1 all the way down to uh, today. But deception, as you know, started in the Garden of Eden, right? And uh, the enemy, Satan, solicited our first parents, and the Bible teaches that all of us were in those parents, and uh, that they were seduced, and they uh, sinned, and they went against God. They did their own thing. They created what we might call the day of man. From the time Adam and Eve were here until the time Jesus comes back, we might call that the day of man, where God's permissive will allows people uh, to make whatever choices they want to make, but will live with whatever consequences those choices come with. And so uh, there's many warnings in the Bible uh, about deception. And uh, I would suggest to you, especially when it comes to talking about end times and uh, things that are coming in the future, there are many warnings in Scripture uh, that tell us to beware of deception. For example, in um, 2 Thessalonians, uh, Paul writes to the, you know, we're, We're using the Thessalonians because the Thessalonians were confused uh, about the future. God had revealed some things. They were confused. They had questions. So the Apostle Paul writes these two letters to actually address issues about uh, end-time events. And right in the middle of that, here's what he says in verse 3 of uh, the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. Let no one deceive you in any way. Let no one deceive you. Uh, There uh, is a lot of deception, a lot of warnings. Jesus warns us about uh, being uh, deceived about end-time events. So I've suggested to you that there are three major reasons for Jesus to come back, three major purposes in Christ's return. And the first is, remember, that um, Jesus will finally be recognized for who he really is by the entire world. His return, according to the Bible, is going to be nothing short of spectacular. Uh, Very, very different from his first coming. His second coming is described in very different terms. Every eye will see him, every ear will hear him, as we saw. Uh, When he came the first time, he came in humility. When he comes back, he's coming in majesty, you know, and uh, the whole world will basically be blown away, as we saw uh, in different Uh, passages of scripture when we looked at that he's coming back um, he came the first time as the lamb of God he's coming back the Bible says as the lion of Judah he came the first time to die he's coming back the second time to reign over the nations and the world and to make everything that's wrong straight and to restore things back to like they were uh, at the very beginning in the garden of Eden and so on so uh, we looked at that second I suggested to you that the reason Jesus is coming back or one of the major purposes for his return is to judge the nations right Uh, his second great purpose will be to vindicate the holiness of God. 
God is a holy God. He's unlike any other. And uh, God is the one who has defined what's right and wrong. He's defined morality. And he will finally bring what some of our politicians are calling moral clarification. Maybe you've heard that term being tossed around as you've uh, watched the news the last couple of weeks. Um, He will bring the fury, the Bible says, of God's wrath that will come against everything that's right and wrong. Uh, I would suggest to you that the world that we live in is on a collision course with its creator and has no clue that it's coming. And uh, that's what Paul wrote to the uh, Thessalonians. You remember, uh, he said, uh, when this comes, when this happens in 1 Thessalonians, he said, the the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night to the world. They'll be totally unaware. They'll be just living normal life, thinking there's peace and everything's cool, and all of a sudden he will appear and everything will be tipsy-turvy. However, then Paul goes on to explain in 1 Thessalonians, that's not true for us Christians. That's true for the world, but we Christians are not in the dark. We're in the light. If we have the word of God and if we take it to heart and if we embrace it and believe it and put our faith in the person of Christ, uh, this day will not come to us like a thief in the night, Paul says, uh, because we're people of the day, uh, because God has revealed himself to us. In uh, Matthew chapter 24, which is a key passage where Jesus answers the disciples' questions about the future, uh, Jesus talks about this day of his coming. He's talking about that in Matthew 24. And he says there's going to be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be again. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And uh, I believe what Jesus is talking about there is these days will be cut short by the rapture of the church. And uh, that brings us to the third great purpose of why Jesus is coming back, the third great purpose of his return. Uh, And I would invite you to think with me a little bit about this uh, this morning. The third great purpose is for the salvation of his followers, for the salvation of believers. Uh, that's why Jesus is coming back, to rescue or save uh, those who have put their trust in him. When Jesus comes back, our faith will be turned to sight. We will see what we believe will turn into reality, into sight, and we will see what he was talking about and understand it uh, completely. When he comes back, our faith will be turned into sight and we will be saved from the wrath of God. Not because we deserve it, not because we're any better than anybody else, right? But because Jesus already absorbed on the cross the wrath of God for those who put their faith in him. What happened on the cross for the first time in all of eternity, right? God turned his back on his son on the cross. My God, my God, Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? And the Bible goes on to explain, because Jesus literally became all of our sin. And God hates sin. Sin is what separates us from him. And so the wrath of God was vented on Jesus for all of those people, past and present and future, who will put their faith in what God did for us and gave to us as a gift, our salvation. 
Uh, But that salvation will become a reality for a generation of people who are here uh, when Christ returns. It's because of the grace of God. And uh, listen, here it is from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where uh, Paul writes to this church again and uh, explains it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse, uh, well, 8 and 9, Uh, It goes like this, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, a helmet, right, designed to protect our head, designed to protect our thinking. How do you stay true to what you believe? The helmet of hope, and hope has to do with the future, and uh, putting our confidence in the promises that God's made about our future. When we have that confidence, uh, we're freed up to act in the present uh, with that helmet of hope, the hope of salvation. And then here's the verse, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for his wrath, right? Okay, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Christ coming back for our salvation? To save that group of people, whether they're dead or alive. Remember, Paul says in a great passage in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this church was all concerned because some people had died and they're like, you know, oh, now these people aren't going to be here to greet Jesus when he comes and so on. And Paul says, no, you got that wrong. The dead in Christ will rise first, right? And then those of us who are alive will join them and will meet the Lord in the air in the classic passage uh, about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so, you know, when you think about this, uh, this is God's wrath. There are two uh, sources of trouble or tribulation or trials in the world today. Uh, One comes from Satan, like in Job. If you read the story of Job You know, Satan goes and says, you know, what about Job? You know, if you came against him, you you just protect him. You love him. He's the most righteous man on the face of the earth. You built a fence around him, God. And so no wonder he honors you. But if you were to take that fence away, and so God says, well, go ahead, have at it. And so Satan goes, does everything he can to Job. If you read the book of Job, most people think it's the uh, earliest book that was ever written in the scriptures. And so, uh, you know, everything happens to Job. His kids die, his wealth goes, his, uh, everything about his life that was great all goes to nothing. All happens in a day. But it's really the story of all of us because that happens to all of us over the course of our life. Um, but Satan is the author of that trouble. The other source of trouble is God, like what happened in Noah's day in the flood. God looked on the world and he said, you know what? The world is so full of evil that I'm just going to be done with it. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You remember it says? And so Noah built an ark. He had to build an ark. Noah's extended family gets in the ark and uh, it starts to rain and judgment comes and there's this massive flood. It's the same thing that happens in Sodom and Gomorrah and it's the same thing that's going to happen when Christ comes back. There's going to be this judgment, but there's also salvation. And uh, one of the reasons that Jesus is coming back is to effect that uh, salvation for us. For we have not been destined for wrath. And you notice in this eighth verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
Um, that again, it's faith, hope, and love that are the three non-negotiable absolutes that every Christian embraces. We have the same faith, the same hope, and the same love. I don't know if you remember, but in John 13, when Jesus was leaving, he said to his disciples, you know, I have one new commandment for you. You must love each other the way I love you. Uh, We can't define love. God's defined what love is. Love is what Christ did for us. You know, a lot of times people talk about love in a lot of different ways. But again, if we have a biblical worldview and we ask God, what is the definition of love? Well, then we come to a biblical worldview and all Christians share the same uh, definition of faith, hope, and love. It's what we have in common. And uh, when we talk about hope, uh, you remember we talked about the fact that hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Like we would say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain, you know, kind of thing. Hope in the Bible is absolute, rock-solid confidence in the character of God and therefore in the promises of God. And so hope in the Bible is, is not just wishful thinking. It's confident that this is going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And so we know certain things that are going to happen in the future, and if we put our faith in those things... Uh, we begin to build our life around the promises of God. We build our life around the promises of God. I've often said, you know, uh, the single most important thing about your life is what you believe. Because what you believe, just think about uh, what's going on with Israel and Islam, Judaism and Islam. What you believe will determine how you think. How you think will determine how you feel, and how you think and feel will determine what you do. Your mind, your heart, your will, you know? So what you believe becomes this, you you say to yourself, you watch the news and you say to yourself, how can this be happening? How can people be, you know, however you see it? And uh, you say to yourself, well, it's because of what they believe. We always act on what we believe. We might say we believe certain things, but you can always watch actions, and that will tell you what people really believe. Because we always act on what we really believe. We can say we believe things, but our actions demonstrate what we really believe. Um, So, we are not destined for wrath. Um, Hebrews talks about it like this. Um, I I just want to make this point that when Christ comes back, it's for our salvation. In um, Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, verses uh, from 26 uh, down, uh, say this. uh, But as it is, he, Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Why is Christ coming back? Not to deal with sin. Sin's already been dealt with on the cross in Christ. He's coming back to save those. You know what? Jesus is coming back to save save us from Jesus' judgment. So that our faith will become sight in the midst of all that's going on. Uh, Again, uh, 
Jesus' return is very different than his first coming. At his first coming, there's still tons of people in the world who don't recognize him for who he really is. At his second coming, it will be impossible not to recognize who he really is. Uh, whatever, uh, you know, we believe becomes the determining factor in what happens to us. Uh, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans. In Romans chapter 5, a pretty familiar uh, passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 5 says this, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Please don't ever think that the only way you can come to God is to first clean up your life. No. While we were yet sinners, God loves us, right? And he reached out to us. God showed his love that while we were still sinners. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Since Jesus came the first time and justified us, to be justified is a legal term. It's to like go to court and have the judge either say, you know, you're guilty or you're acquitted. And that announcement is made. And uh, it's declared. Well, when we turn to Christ and we put our faith in him, then God knows and we are declared justified. And uh, I always like the definition of the word justified, just as if I'd never sinned, right? Justified. And uh, we are forgiven for our sins, and the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. I mean, it's a huge gift from God. In fact, if you just go back to uh, Romans 3.23, very familiar passage, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When God made people, he made them to be like him. And all people, from Adam and Eve all the way down to us, all people have fallen short, would you agree, with what God created us to be, to be like him. None of us are like him. And so it says here um, that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. You can't earn a right standing with God. It's a gift. And it's humbling. Because there is no way you could ever measure up to be who God made us to be. But God loved us enough to put his son on the cross so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be credited with the very righteousness of Christ so that we might be acceptable to God. We've been justified. But we'll be saved when Christ comes back. Both the dead, right, will rise, and uh, those of us who are living uh, will be joined together with him. And what a great gift this is. It's a gift if we simply take him at his word. And once we're justified by his death, we will certainly be saved uh, by his life. And then uh, I'm, I'm just going through a couple passages of scripture that kind of agree with the Thessalonian letter that Paul wrote. And uh, I think Peter says the same thing. And now I'm in 1 Peter. And uh, 1 Peter 1.5. So that this isn't, you know, I think if you're going to understand and have a biblical worldview, the Bible is its own best commentator. You can't interpret any one portion of scripture without putting it into the context of the entire scriptures. And that's a, a huge uh, way uh, to keep straight. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 
uh, verse 5, we read this. Who by God's power, talking about us, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What's the last time? It's the time when Christ comes back. And so we, are, we have this, uh, the verse before this talks about this great inheritance that's ours. According to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded for this end time event when Christ comes back. And we inherit this great inheritance. Have you ever received an inheritance from anybody? It's really a great thing, isn't that? You know, if, uh, you know, if somebody thinks about you and they pass on and they leave you an inheritance. Uh, we have an inheritance from God that that's unfading and that you cannot even imagine all that's ours because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And so. Uh, all through the scriptures, our salvation uh, comes to us when uh, Christ comes back at the end of time. And what a great day that's going to be for us, and what an incentive for us. Now, I also think several of Jesus' parables uh, talk about the end times. And um, one of them, you might remember, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said that the end times are going to be like this. And he said a farmer went out and sowed good seed in his field. You remember this story? And, and uh, then the farmer and his guys go to sleep. And at night, the enemy comes and sows all seeds of weeds, right? And so when it gets close to harvest, all of a sudden now the plants are coming up, but all the weeds are coming up. And they go to the farmer and they say, you want us to yank out all the weeds? And it's like, no, because if you yank out the weeds, you're also going to yank out the wheat, and then we're not going to have a harvest, and so on and so forth. And so the disciples come to Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, and uh, in verse uh, 36, 37, uh, the disciples say to Jesus, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So Jesus said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, Jesus. Remember, Jesus went around and sowed the word of God, told us the truth. And uh, the field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil himself. The harvest is at the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. The harvest is at the close of the age, the reapers are the angels, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all the lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now there are several parables like this, right, that uh, Jesus uses to explain what's going to happen uh, when he comes back. So the salvation or uh, the rescue of God's people when Jesus comes back is called uh, the rapture. Most people refer to it as the rapture, the rapture of the church. Now, um, the rapture 
along with the day of the Lord, are the two, I think, most important uh, concepts about Jesus' return that need to be understood. A lot of things fall into place when we understand what the day of the Lord is, and we talked about that, the day of judgment, and what the rapture is, the salvation of God's church, true church, the church that uh, has put their faith in the person of Christ. And so uh, it's pretty interesting. The word rapture uh, is a translation of a Greek word uh, called harpazo, and it's used 14 times in the New Testament, has three different meanings. It means to claim for oneself, Think of this, the rapture, to claim for oneself, to snatch away speedily, or uh, to rescue from danger. And uh, the rapture will be the end of death. The dead in Christ will rise, and the rapture will be the end of death for all believers. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul talks, I think, about the rapture, and here's what he says. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery in the Bible is a truth that God knows but hasn't revealed yet. Theologians call it progressive revelation, right? There are some things like people in the Old Testament didn't know about stuff that was going to happen in the New Testament. Well, one of the mysteries, one of the things God always had planned but never revealed, like this isn't in the Old Testament any place, is the rapture of the church. You, you won't find it uh, in all the prophets and everything that talk about uh, Christ. Uh, the rapture is not mentioned there. But Paul says, look, I'm going to tell you a mystery. And Paul, in other places, says, God revealed this to me, and that's why I'm passing it on to you. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. Sleep is a metaphor for death. Okay, We're not all going to stay dead. Right? But we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Uh, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O oh, death, where's your victory? O oh, death, where's your sting? Right? Death swallowed up in victory. I had a uh, conversation this past week with a man uh, who had grown up in a church uh, his whole life. I'd say he's in his late 60s. And uh, we got onto the subject because it's on TV of Israel and we got talking and I shared with him that, you know, that someday uh, we're going to live on the other side of this life. Totally surprised. The guy was like, you kidding me? I'm like, no, I can show you in the Bible. Eternal life is what Christ came to give. I'd never heard this before. And I was like blown away that he had never heard that when Jesus came, I said, you know, what about Easter Sunday? Do you believe that Jesus came back from the dead, that he conquered death? You know, I tell you a mystery, Paul says. And uh, it's kind of exciting to think about. The rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but God revealed it to Paul. And Paul, for the first time, talked about it. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says to the people there in that church, uh, the Lord is my source for what I'm telling you and so forth. And so when it comes to understanding end times, one of the most controversial issues 
is the timing of the rapture. Christians have a lot of different ideas uh, about when the rapture is going to happen in relationship to other events that the Bible reveals, the timing of the rapture. And this uh, uh, issue, you know, divides Christians to the point where lots of churches don't even talk about this, right? I feel like I can talk about this and then I'll be gone. So, you know, you can be mad at me, you can disagree with my uh, position and all the rest, but I would tell you this. Um, Ferret out your own position based on Scripture. Don't go to the Scriptures with a preconceived idea. You know, I was taught a certain thing in seminary, and then when I studied the Scriptures, I realized, I don't think that's right. I hope that's right, but I don't think it's right. And I think we need to do that. We can't just say, well, so-and-so, you know, he says the rapture's going to happen. Like, the most common idea among most evangelical Christians is that the rapture of the church happens before any tribulation comes on the world. And a lot of Christians I've talked to said, well, I don't really care about this stuff because I'm not going to be here. Well, what if you're wrong about that? Remember, I said there are two sources of tribulation, right? God's tribulation and Satan's tribulation. Now, the Bible is very clear, just the passages we read this morning, that we are not ever going to experience the wrath of God because Jesus took that for us on the cross. We are exempt. We will be raptured before the wrath of God comes on the world. But there's no place in Scripture that says we're exempt from the wrath of Satan. In fact, the opposite is true. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, you are destined for tribulation. And Jesus says, you know, that anybody who lives for him is going to encounter trials and tribulations and so on. And so, again, in order to develop a worldview, we have to kind of exegete from the scripture what our position is rather than go to the scriptures and say and look for things that affirm what we think, you know. We want, to, we want God to speak. We want to put our faith and our hope in the word of God, not the word of men. So I have a position, Right? And I'll share it with you along the way, but don't take it because I say so. You're going to ferret this out for yourself. This is our destiny. And we want to be, you know, totally confident, sure, that the promises of God that he makes for the future, that we're going to build our life around, because what we believe changes what we think, changes how we feel, changes the choices we make. We want to make sure that we've got the truth. And so uh, I'm going to do my best to kind of lay some of this out uh, as we go forward, but I pray for you that you would not just take somebody else's word for it. Um, You know, uh, I think this is a big problem that keeps people away from it. In fact, let me just close with this. I would say to you that um, really what happened to the Thessalonians and why they had such questions uh, really came from this whole idea of other people putting in their minds things that didn't come from God. And so in 2 Thessalonians and the second chapter, uh, the first couple of verses there, um, let me just read this and we'll close with this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, rapture, okay? Concerning the coming of the Lord and our being gathered. Jesus uses the exact same word, gathered, when he talks about it in Matthew chapter 24. Being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly to be from us, 
to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of rapture and the day of the Lord are talked about together in the same sentence. Right? Did you catch that? You know what's going on here? This church had what we call today misinformation, fake news. Somebody got to these people and put wrong ideas into their head. They started to embrace wrong beliefs, and so Paul writes this letter to straighten them out. You know what Jesus says? Um, As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. If you go back to Genesis chapter 7 and you read how it was in the days of Noah, on the very same day that it started to rain, Noah got into the ark. Could it be that the day of the Lord and the day of the rapture are the same day? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to have the Bible. God breathed. Our only problem is understanding it, right? Interpreting it. And we want to be faithful. We want to understand what you have written for us as the end of the ages has come upon us. I pray that you'll just give us wisdom. I pray that you'll help us, Father, to understand both Old and New Testaments and how they complement, and especially the words of Jesus, how they complement each other, and uh, how, Father, you want us to put our hope in your word and in your character, and in your promises. And that hope will make us steady and cause us, Father, to be uh, your uh, children all the way to the end because we're confident of our future. And, Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And we thank him for going to the cross in our place that we might not ever have to fear coming under the wrath of God. Amen.